Hello and welcome to the Scene Magazine podcast. My name is Alex Kleinberg and today I'm joined by Diana Suami, one of the UK's most critically acclaimed literary biographers. Diana Suami, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Well, first of all, congratulations on winning the Polari Prize for your last book. Yes, I was was chuffed about that. It's a sort of... Um, recognition by by your tribe, you know, <laughs> and also with all those initials LGBTQIA, I'm quite glad the L's. I'm quite glad for the L's. <laughs> oh, you've been representing the L's for a long time, of course. And if we rewind back to the beginning, before you wrote your first book, Gluck, I think you were working for the BBC. That's right. That's right. You're going... Back now, this is the 1980s when 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 I first um, published my first, the first in my oeuvre of Dyer's Dykes, which was, yes, a book, a, a biography of a woman called Gluck, who was a, um, a society painter. And um, I, I got a commission to do that. And, and, after, and since then, since the 80s, I've written a lot of, of biographies of... of lesbians yes so so was it your ambition back in the day when you were working for the bbc i know you wrote some newspaper columns and short stories as well was it your ambition to to become a a full-time author yes it was and and it was actually the 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 way that i managed that was um I'd, i'd had plays i'd written plays and i'd had them put on at the edinburgh festival and in fringe theatres and I'd had short stories published Um, and I was doing some journalism for City Limits and Time Out and other papers Um, and I saw, I went one lunchtime um, with a colleague from the BBC into an exhibition of Gluck's work, I'd never heard of Gluck, at the Fine Arts Society in Bond Street, I think we ducked in there out of the rain and I saw this key painting by Gluck, she calls it the U-We picture, and it's of the merged profiles of her and her lover, Nestor Obama. And I sort of knew what was going on in that painting. It gave me a shock of recognition, you know, this defiant portrait, um, this defiant double portrait. And then soon after that, I got um, I got a, a letter out of the blue that sort of stroke of serendipity or luck from a, an editor at Pandora Press who said she liked my bits of journalism had I got a book I wanted to write and I thought again of Gluck and got a commission and that really was, you know, I think all writers or and all aspiring writers need a bit, don't you think, we all need a, a bit of luck somewhere along the line, an affirmation and, Absolutely. and, and since then I've had, I've had commissions to write whatever I wanted. And with Gluck, I mean, is it true that you were offered um, almost like a, a box of her her papers and her personal diaries and what have you? Yes, that's absolutely true. I mean, I didn't know it was. I would have probably at this stage in my life been very hesitant about about saying I'd like to write a biography of her, but um, her I, without knowing more about her, it was really that her paintings and that double portrait that that 
that intrigued me. But her nephew was her executor, and he just dumped all her papers into his garage. And I was living in a top-floor flat, and I carried these boxes of rather damp, you know how musty damp papers smell. I carried them up to my top-floor attic flat that I was living in at that time. And um, I thought, you know, make a life out of this. And I opened in some despair these letters and that creepy feeling of reading other people's letters. And they all addressed to, they all read things like dearest rabbit skin snooch bun snoo or darling Timmy. And then I couldn't read the writing in the diaries. And, and I thought I'm not going to be able to do this. But then it, bit by bit, if you stare at things long enough, they make sense, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And is that a process that's always happened when you're researching a biography and you're looking at the source material? You kind of spend long enough with it and it's like detective work. The picture comes together. I think that's true. It's a sort of strange evolution because, of course, it varies what people leave behind. Gluck left a lot because she was a hoarder. Sometimes people leave very little or it's all in you know, all, all, all being only formally available, formally available in museum archives, which in many ways is the most boring way of researching because you're given one file at a time. But what has to happen, I think, is, <clears throat> is some, some distillation, something happens so that the person comes alive. Um, and I think if that doesn't happen, it doesn't work, do you know? I mean, sometimes I pinch myself and think I've, I've really had a weird life and most of the time I've spent it with people who aren't there you know yeah. so I think in any writing process in any acting process probably in any imaginative process as a reader or a viewer it has the people have to come alive they have to be there and ring true otherwise it doesn't work and I do feel that yes I was inhabited by Glark for as long as I was writing about her and the others that I've written about as well. And how do you go about researching somebody like, um, I really like your, your biography of Garbo that, and, and Cecil Beaton, Greta and Cecil. Obviously Beaton kept very extensive diaries, but Greta Garbo was sort of very reclusive and didn't really write anything down. So, I mean, how do you go about writing about somebody like Garbo who was very, very reclusive? Yes. I mean, I think the thing is, I've never really been, ex apart from Gluck, when I was new to it, and I sort of began at the beginning and worked through, I've never really wanted to do um, cradle to grave biography, you know, one thing after another. I've always wanted a, a theme to dictate what I was writing about. And with Garbo and Beaton, the thing that interested me was the gaze and, and the photograph and the image and him wanting to be her. Yeah. You know, I mean, he wanted, there are photographs of him dressed in as Queen Christina because she was Queen, Queen Christina in a, in a, in a movie. And, and he asked her to marry, he asked her to marry him, which was quite grotesque, but so all, I wasn't doing, um, you know, a, 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 a set biography of them both. I was doing, I was focusing 
on this strange business of shifting identity and queer identity, I guess, for both of them, because she had an affair with Mercedes da Costa. Um, and she, I think they, I think she and, and Cecil Beaton, who was gay, of course, did spend a night together. But for her, she was just messing around. But it became a sort of strange, unreal world of image and gaze and beauty and what's the photograph, what does a photograph do and how do you capture the beauty of, of, of the subject? Do you know, all these were the ideas that were floating around in my mind and that I was working with when I wrote Greta and Cecil. Yeah, that's the thing I really liked about that book is, you know, you focused on that relationship um, as opposed to just trying to cover their whole lives, which were very extensive and um, really kind of almost presented that as, as a story, as, as a whole book. And, um, you know, the, and I think that maybe the book you're most associated with, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, will be The Trials of Radcliffe Hall. Yes, I mean, in in that, in The Trials of Radcliffe Hall, again, the sort of, underpinning concept, the central concept, was, you know, this ludicrous thing that she, Radcliffe Hall wrote The Well of Loneliness, this anodyne novel um, written in 1928. And she was, she was established for, for, uh, as a novelist, but because she actually changed pronouns and said she kissed her, full on the lips because the book was about lesbian love in the most sort of respectable and and inexplicit way. Um, It was banned as obscene because there was censorship and burned in the king's furnace. And the trial was just grotesque, you know, of all the patriarchs, the grand old men of England, the Lord Chief Justice and, and the Home Secretary and all of them saying this is a book and the editor of the Daily Express all saying this is a book that must be banned because of the subject. And so that was at the core of the book, but also Radcliffe's, Radcliffe Hall's whole life was a trial. So I mixed that central trial into the theme of her childhood was a trial, her sexuality was a trial. Her relationships were a trial. So that was how I got, how I progressed, if you like, with that book. And then in another one, um, which I called um, Gertrude and Alice, it was about Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. And um, the irony that all the conditions for a very happy marriage were achieved by two eccentric creative women. Yeah, and that actually leads on to your your latest book uh, that you won the Polari Prize for, No Modernism Without Lesbians, because you return to that era of modernism, of Paris. You know, Gertrude Stein was very much a part of that. But in, in your latest book, you write about a lot of other women um, who are less well-known than Gertrude Stein. But w- what would you say is the um, uh, central theme that ties all these women together in your new book? Yes, well, in a way... Um... For me, because it's the last one I want to do now, because I'm old, um, it's a, um, it, it, the others led to this. And I began to see beyond just one individual after another individual, 
to the huge contribution that um, to modernism that that, uh, that women made, and this one, um, no modernism without lesbians. Inter interestingly, for the first time, even though I started writing these books in the 1980s, for the first time, the publisher actually wants the word lesbian on the on the on the book jacket, and that's how times have changed. You know, there's that 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 it's it's been freed from um, any residual embarrassment or or apology, um, but they because there was censorship, um, and because there were societal expectations, all the women that I write about had to get away from their hometowns like London or or Washington, and they went to Paris and they created their own community. And it was quite extraordinary when that happened. Uh, they could and they published what they wanted, um, and they wrote what they wanted, and they didn't have the patriarchs or the toxic patriarch patriarchs, if you like, telling them they couldn't do it. I mean, one of the women that I choose in this book is Sylvia Beach, who started the bookshop Shakespeare and Company in Paris and single-handedly published Ulysses when no commercial publisher would touch it, you know. Um, and that shop is still going strong. And Shakespeare and Company is still there, but not in the same, not in the same guise as it was when she started it. But it was a wonderful thing for her to do. And all, all, the, um, all the modernist writers like Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald and Paul Bowles and... They all congregate. They all went. They got out of America and went to. And the, one of their first stops was Shakespeare and Company, where she, Sylvia Beach, helped them um, with their careers. You know, I mean, she said that the reason why every self-respecting young novelist got out of America was because they couldn't get Ulysses and they couldn't get a drink because there was prohibition as well in America. So Paris was this amazing community and an amazing community of of creative lesbians who, and my thesis in the book, if you like, is that modernism wouldn't have happened without them. I think it's interesting. You said you think this might be your last book. Well, it's my last one. I have been commissioned to write a memoir and it's going rather slowly, I'm afraid. That was going to be my follow-up question. Would you ever write the Diana Suami story? Well, it's really interesting because I thought when I... I, I, I did enough, I wrote enough to get a commission and was enjoying it, um, you know, because I was born in, I was born in 1940, I was born in the first day of the, of the Luftwaffe's Blitz on London. So, you know, it's quite an extraordinary trajectory of the 1940s to now. Um, and I started writing very happily, but now I've got the commission, I've kind of got cold feet and I realised how much easier it is to, or how much safer it is perhaps, to write about other people than to write about oneself. It's difficult um, because I don't think it works unless, you, unless you're transparent, you know, um, and unless, uh, and also I don't want to, uh, well, I, I guess it's, any writer, if they say if you've got a writer in the family, you've not got a family. I mean anything, anything, <laughs> anything, anything you write or remember 
will offend somebody. Oh, absolutely. Not even had dinner in in you know in nine on the first of June, nineteen seventy three. Somebody will take offence at it. Mm, but you may be relying on people who who aren't around anymore. If you're, you know, of a certain age, you know, you, maybe these if these people aren't around anymore, it makes it a bit easier. I know, but there's also, and you can't libel the dead. It's true, but you there's also the feeling of are you being of, I don't know, there is a sort of inhibition about about saying what you really feel to the to the page, or I'm finding it like that anyway. And also it mustn't just be indulgent. I mean, you can't just weep all over all over your computer, can you? Or <laughs> or just bang on about about your genealogy and things. It's got to be, it's got to be. There has to be a lightness of touch in a book that you write, do you know? That's, Mm -hmm. dear reader, it's like inviting someone to dinner, you know. You have to make it nice. Otherwise, why should they bother to cross town? Yeah, so you feel more at home, say, writing about, you know, Gertrude Stein. You feel more freedom, like, like you can express yourself more freely than, say, writing about yourself. I feel, say, I feel... Safer and less, yes, the spotlight isn't so much on me, although obviously as a writer, I'm sure you know it only works if if it rings true. And it's the same of any writing, isn't it? And I think there's a distinction between what's literally true and what's literarily true, do you know? Um don't you agree? Do you know? Yeah, definitely. It yeah. can be literally true, but it can be literarily true in, in that it fits into the story that you're telling. And um, I mean, that's what we when we when we're enjoying novels, we think they're true, don't we? When we're enjoying films, we think they're true. But when you come to memoir, there has to be it has to be both in a sense, literally true and literarily true. Although I think I'm just going to make it all up, actually. Well, why not? Yeah. Sometimes real life might be a little bit too messy to write about. Exactly. (laughs) Whereas a novel's all symmetrical, you know. (laughs) And and anyway, if it's mine, I can leave out what I want, can't I? And I can say what I want. Absolutely. Yeah. I think when I last interviewed you, you said, if in doubt, out is a mantra. Yes, that's right. Even more so in the whole in the whole um field of um memoir, I think. Um, so of all that is a question I have to ask you, of all the women and men, but mostly women that you've written about, who is your favorite? Who stands out and why? Do you know I it's a very hard one. It's like saying, you know, of your lovers, which which is one, <laughs> is there a one and only? I think there's a total absorption for the time that I'm writing about them, like in relationship. I think one one absorbs quite totally into it. Um, you know, I wrote about I write about um, Gertrude Stein again in this latest book, and I wrote about her back in the 80s in in the context of her long, happy marriage to Alice B. Toklas. And this time I write about her as her uh, influence as a modernist, her influence on other people, the way she 
um, further the careers of Picasso and Cezanne and Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald and her own strange, innovative prose. So I've got a lot of time for her. I like the way I like the way she is unfathomable a lot of the time in her writing and then is so commonsensical, you know, um, and such a and so oblivious to to pressures of uh, of of from the from the world of achievement, you know, she really did live life um, as she wanted to, and quite humorously and indulgently. So I have got time for her, but I could equally um, tomorrow tell you that another one was my was my favorite. Okay, you might roll your eyes at this question, but um, if, if somebody was an aspiring biographer, let's say, what would be what key piece of advice would you give them? I think I think that the really important thing, and I think it's true of any creative um, endeavour, is, is this thing, you know, it's said quite as if it's facile, but it isn't, to be true to yourself, really to have your voice and not... Um, and not try and gainsay what you think people want to read, but really think, what is your relationship to this person? How do you see this person that you're writing about? Do you know? Because if you get that right, then if you don't get that right, you're going to be, it's not going to work, I don't think. So really it's to find your voice. Um, And I think that that's true, not just for biography, but for all all artistic expression really but you know um you have to you have to be true true to your own voice and to your own feelings and your own thoughts so it is a weird endeavor writing as is reading because it is a sort of process of self-discovery as well as your relationship and evocation of the person that you're writing about and as you look back on all the books that you've written, I mean, do you feel a real sense of accomplishment? Do you think, wow, I, I wrote all those books? No, I don't, because, I mean, which of us goes around patting ourselves on the back thinking that we've done well? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm always glad if I get a prize or an affirmation, but I, can, I think I could truthfully say that I would think less of myself if I hadn't written them. I am glad that they're there, you know. Um, So I think through them I have found, because, you know, born in the 1940s, growing up in the 50s and 60s, being lesbian or gay or any of those initials you want to take wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't anyone that you, wasn't something you could talk about or that people wanted certainly family and society in general wanted to hear. And I think that through those books, I found my identity. And so I'm both grateful to have re- grateful to have had the privilege to write them and glad that they're there, because I think I'd feel worse about myself if they weren't. Absolutely. And it's, it's such a unique experience and perspective that you have, and particularly in those kind of darker years when homosexuality was so taboo um for you to write about that in a memoir would really be fa- a fascinating 
of historical document, you know, to the to give people. That's right. I think you're right. And I think, I mean, with any book, you start off thinking you've got a plan and you know where you're going, a bit like one's own life, I suppose, or relationships too. You think you know where you're going, but then you don't go in that direction. It it takes over. And so the fact of the relationship or the subject takes over and 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 guides you. And I think in some way my memoir will be a sort of coming out story, you know. Diana Suami's latest book, No Modernism Without Lesbians, is out now. She won the Polari Prize for that book, of course. You can also discover her extensive back catalogue. All of her books are still in print.